DiscerningHearts.com presents The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. Joseph Pierce is the director of the Center for Faith and Culture and writer-in-residence at Aquinas College in Nashville, Tennessee. He's a renowned biographer whose works include his own autobiography as well as books on the lives of Father Ho Lang, William Shakespeare, J.R.R. Tolkien, L.R. Belloc, G.K. Chesterton, and numerous others. He's the recipient of an honorary doctorate of higher education from Thomas More College for the Liberal Arts and has also received the Pollock Award for Christian Biography. He is the co-editor of the St. Austin Review and has hosted two series on Shakespeare for EWTN as well as hosting several EWTN productions on J.R.R. Tolkien. The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Joseph, thank you so much for joining me. It's good as always. I so feel blessed and uh, excited about speaking about the works of Shakespeare with you. Uh, You have come to know William Shakespeare pretty well, haven't you? Well, Shakespeare has always been uh, a great love of mine, and so it's been a joy of mine over the last uh, six or seven years to actually be engaged much more closely with him. Uh, Obviously, I've now written... Uh, three books on Shakespeare and have uh, um, edited, I think, five or six uh, Ignatius Critical Editions of Shakespeare's plays. So, yeah, it's been, it's been a joy to engage with him more closely. It's obviously a labor of love. And, you know, if I had my way, I'd, be, I'd write on every single one of the plays. But uh, unfortunately, life's more complicated than that. And I have other things to write on and other, thing, other things to do. But, uh, but Shakespeare's certainly a, a, a very much a love of mine. He's He's a genius. He's one of the greatest writers of all time. Only Homer and Dante can sort of claim to rival him. And certainly he's the greatest English writer of all time. So as an Englishman, it's obviously not just a a joy and a pleasure. uh, It's also a privilege and an honor to actually be so close to him. He has an incredible grasp of just about every genre from the comedy to the tragedy to just about everything in between, but also the historical. And Julius Caesar is one that I think almost everyone who took an advanced English lit class, either in high school or in college, has encountered the play Julius Caesar. Absolutely. I mean, I I think it's only rivaled by Romeo and Juliet as as a set text in uh, high school, certainly a high school level. Uh, Romeo and Juliet and Julius Caesar, I think, are head and shoulders above any other of Shakespeare's plays as regards the, the frequency with which it's uh, part of the, uh, the curriculum. So obviously it's a very, very important play for that reason in, it, in itself, as well of course, as, as of course being a, a wonderful work of literary art, uh, as all of Shakespeare's plays are. Why do you suppose Julius Caesar out of all the works? Well, yeah, in, in terms of merit, I, I'm actually a little bit puzzled by its popularity because, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great play, of course, but I mean, there are greater plays that are not mm-hmm. given as much attention. Uh, you know, one thinks, of course, of Hamlet or Macbeth or King Lear that clearly uh, are greater as works literary art. But I think the reason is that Julius Caesar, I think, is, is, is very accessible. It's relatively easy play to follow and to understand. And also, I think, certainly in more tradition-oriented syllabi, it, it allows schools to, to kill two birds with one stone, that they can actually be teaching history as well as, as literature at the same time. Obviously, the Roman Empire is it's a very important part of history. The Julius Caesar is obviously one of the giants of history. So if you 
teach Shakespeare's play on Julius Caesar, you can sort of be seen as getting an insight into history at the same time as you're actually reading Shakespeare. So I think that's probably, quite frankly, one of the reasons, as well as its, its accessibility. It's, it's easier to understand, you know, should we say, for 16-year-olds than, say, for instance, Hamlet or, how, or Lear. How would the bard of the 1500s have access to the type of information that he seems to have in these historical works? Well, we know that uh, Shakespeare had access to Hollingshead's history, was his principal source for most of his his English history plays, but also Plutarch's Lives was available to him. Plutarch's Lives is the principal historical source for all of the plays on Julius Caesar, and there were actually several of them in Shakespeare's time. It was a very popular theme. Obviously, it's an exciting story, assassination, betrayal, the violent death of one of the most famous people in history. I think that something, one thing that's interesting about Julius Caesar, however, is not merely evidence it shows for Shakespeare's knowledge of, of history, but also I think there's an element of Shakespeare's knowledge of, of Plato, because I think in, the, shall we say, the underlying political philosophy of Julius Caesar, we see a reflection of Plato's Republic, uh, and certainly P- Plato's understanding of how rule by the honourable or by those which he is, gives gives way to rules ruled by an oligarchical elite, corrupt elite, and how that in turn gives way to mob rule, uh, democracy, as Plato calls it, ruled by the mob, and how ruled by the mob leads to uh, the foundation of a tyranny, uh, dictatorship. So we see that actually in the, in the playing out of Shakespeare's play that uh, honour is betrayed, that corrupt classes betraying each other, the mob uh, is, is seen to be fickle and is being played upon by both sides, and ultimately mob rule leads to the founding of a, the establishment of a dictatorship under strong government. So you know, we see in, in, in Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, a reflection of Plato's Republic, and I think, you know, again, we see how great Catholic writers such as Shakespeare go hand in glove with the great Greek writers and philosophers such as Plato. Well, you've taught us to really take a look at the play in context of his time, of Shakespeare's time, and of the situation that he could potentially be addressing in his writings. And that would indeed be the case with Julius Caesar, wouldn't it? Oh, absolutely. Obviously, what Shakespeare's doing is uh, using history as a mirror for his own time and the politics and corruption of his own time. Uh, There was actually a a law passed in around uh, 1599, which is is the time that Julius Caesar uh, is believed to have been written at the end of the end of of the 16th century and towards the end of Queen Elizabeth's reign. That law made it illegal uh, for playwrights to talk about English history. And a part of the reason for that was the success of playwrights such as Shakespeare in in exposing contemporary society by paralleling it with the England of the past. Well, they made that illegal, and it's not no coincidence that at that time that Shakespeare decides that obviously he can't write about English history, so the English history plays cease, but he then starts writing about uh, Rome and takes the thing overseas so that he circumvents the law. But anybody that understands the corruption of Elizabethan England, uh, and particularly the persecution of, of Catholics in Elizabethan England, will see parallels between what's going on in Julius Caesar, the play, and what's going on for real in Shakespeare's England, the end of the 16th century. It is kind of amazing that as you read Julius Caesar, he's not really the star, is he? Even though the play is named after him, he only appears in certain sections of it, but there are three other major characters, and their dynamics seem to be the crux of the play. 
Absolutely. I mean, one, one of the uh, literary devices that, that, that Shakespeare uses in Julius Caesar is that of irony. He uses irony perhaps more in this play than any other. And part of the irony is the fact that the, the so-called star of the show is not really the star of the show at all. Julius Caesar, the play's named after him. Therefore, he's, he's, he seems to be the central focus. And yet he's killed, you know, halfway through the play. We don't see him again after that, except for a reference to his ghost. So basically, uh, he isn't actually the, the central figure. He's one of the four. I think you could say there's four central figures. Mm-hmm. You could say that Julius Caesar was one. Then you have Cassius, the, uh, the corrupt Machiavel, who again, Shakespeare makes, makes it plain that Cassius doesn't like plays and doesn't like music. This is a, a way that show, Shakespeare shows uh, the connection with Puritanism. The Puritans were opposed to the use of music in the liturgy, opposed to polyphony and Gregorian chant. They were opposed to the to the theatres, and eventually, you know, years later, would actually close the theatres down. So, you know, we see, for instance, in the characterization of Shylock, who is uh, uh, on the surface a Jew. In fact, uh, it's a personification of of uh, contemporary Puritanism. That, that play was written just a couple of years before Julius Caesar, and here we see, I think, Cassius cast in the role of the Puritan, who's also the diabolical Machiavel, the Machiavellian figure who's behind the conspiracy, who's, who's motivated by, by envy. Um, and so he, if you like, in some ways, the obvious villain. But, you know, but Mark Antony uh, uses the masses through rhetoric, so he's a demagogue. You know, and Brutus, the so-called Honorable Brutus, is, is, of course, in many ways, a brutal idealist who betrays his own friend, Julius Caesar, in pursuit of, of his own ideals. And in this, we can see parallels not only with the Puritans of Shakespeare's time, and they're putting Catholics to death in the name of theology or, or, or politics, but also, of course, in our own time, the, the brutal idealism of communism or Nazism that puts millions of people to death in the, in the, name, in the name of ideology. I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Joseph, that it was in your introduction that really helped for me, it really enlightened the play for me to realize that maybe there's another character here, but it's not actually a character. It's a, how do I want to say this? The silence, that there is a voice that isn't heard. And that is something that for people who are familiar with Shakespeare plays, it, it's kind of uh, a strange type of experience, isn't it? Yeah, there's a parallel in the 20th century literature with the greatest uh, uh, novel, uh, in my view, of the 20th century, Broadhead Revisited, mm-hmm. where even in War says that the focus of his book is the workings of divine grace in the lives of one family. Well, that makes divine grace, in other words, the work of the Holy Spirit the most important character in the work, although obviously uh, he's invisible. So uh, obviously that's an example in our own time. But Shakespeare does the same thing. It's, it's the powerful absence of virtue creating a vacuum of viciousness. And we see it in Romeo and Juliet. I mean, with the, with the exception of the friar, and even the friar is flawed, but with the exception of the friar, there's, there's this precious little virtue in any of the characters of Romeo and Juliet, and that's what leads to the destruction of so many people, so many, so many lives destroyed, innocent and guilty. Well, the same thing in Julius Caesar. It's the absence of virtue. And there are several occasions in the plot, you know, where if characters had listened to the voice of wisdom or for the warnings of the philosophers, uh, or indeed the warnings of their own wives, uh, you know, if, if Julius Caesar had listened to Calphurnia, his wife, he would not have gone to the Senate. He would not have been murdered, but he he brushes his wife aside. And again, if, if Brutus had shared the conspiracy 
with his own wife, Portia, and taken Portia's advice, he may indeed not have gone through with it. So, uh, and then again, and there are various examples where soothsayers and, and, and rhetoricians are giving notes and giving warnings and, and telling Julius Caesar to beware. And all of these words of uh, wisdom and of warning are ignored by the arrogant Julius Caesar, who believes he's indestructible um, uh, and you know, a demigod. Uh, and indeed, by Brutus, refuses to listen to his own wife. So, you know, again, it's it's the real absence of virtue, which is creates the vacuum of viciousness that leads to the destruction of the characters. In the portrayal of each of those characters, it, as you again alluded to at the beginning of our conversation, they seem to represent something. And I think the, the one who comes off the harshest is Cassius. Yeah, I, I think Cassius is, you know, he's one of... Shakespeare's archetypal villains, we can compare him with Diego and Othello. He's a Machiavelli. And we see this so often in Shakespeare's plays that the villain is someone who is anti-religious, who's a disciple of, of late Renaissance secularism and relativism, or following in the footsteps of, of Machiavelli, who wrote his own famous work, The Prince, mm-hmm. uh, about 80 years before Shakespeare wrote Julius Caesar, it was a major influence on the Renaissance. So Shakespeare is aware of the rise of secularism, the rise of relativism, the rise of this immoral, should we say, um, utilitarianism, where the, the purpose of, of life is to get what you want by the manipulation of others. And and these Machiavels, these, these disciples of Machiavelli, uh, these relativists become the worst villains in Shakespeare's plays, you know, the Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, Diego, in uh, in Othello, uh, Edmund in King Lear. I mean, these are all examples of Machiavellian characters that Shakespeare shows to be almost the personification of evil. And of course, Cassius fits that mold as well. It's a morally so problematic in that their solution to confronting what they see as evil occurring, or, or even if they're trying to attain power, whatever it is, the fact that they would use murder as an ends to a means. That's something I, I recall having those types of discussions when, when I originally first encountered the play. Is, is he advocating that this is, is something that's appropriate or is it something that is for, forbidden? No, I, I, absolutely the latter. It's verboten. Uh, the, the, that from a moral perspective, mm-hmm. what he shows is that, that once we stray away from conventional, in other words, Christian morality, what we get is anarchy. So we have, you know, we we have the Machiavellian figure Cassius manipulating the brutal idealist Brutus, and also Mark Antony uh, manipulating the mob, who are so fickle that the, the play starts, you know, with the complaint that the mob that had um, sung the praises of Pompey are now singing the praises of Pompey's murderer. So the other thing you hear, of course, is that Shakespeare's, uh, should we say, distrust of of the mob, of the masses. That uh, you know that that, that uh, should we say that that a reductionist understanding of democracy that we're going to get what's best if we go for the lowest common denominator in everybody's selfishness is clearly not the case. In mob rule is always leads to anarchy or revolution, and revolution leads to anarchy, and anarchy leads to tyranny. So that's exactly what we see happening here: is that when when we turn our backs on conventional mor- morality in the sphere of politics as in the sphere of everything else, what we get is First of all, cynicism leading to anarchy and anarchy leading to tyranny. And that's exactly the process that happens in the real life history as told to us by, by Plutarch in his lives. 
of Caesar and others, but also we see the same thing being played out in Shakespeare's play. It's difficult to know how to feel towards Julius Caesar in the sense that he is a dictator. He has taken over and assumed power and amassed it. And that, to our sensibility, especially in the United States, that shouldn't be a, someone who should be lifted up as a hero. Yeah, let, let's, let's, again, though, to see the thing in the context, not just of, of, of say, shall we say, a political philosophy from the, mm-hmm. a 21st century American perspective, but political philosophy in a timeless Catholic perspective. You know, the Catholic Church always talked about checks and balances between the rights of a monarch and, and the rights of the church, what, what the Catholic Church now calls subsidiarity. Mm-hmm. And Shakespeare again shows, you know, in his work that he distrusts a dictatorship, what became known certainly in the reign of King James that followed, uh, the idea of the divine right of kings, that a king has a divine right to do what he likes. Well, Shakespeare comes out strongly against that in his plays. So Shakespeare here, let's, let's remember that Elizabeth, Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth was a dictator. She had usurped power, or at least had continued the usurpation of power that her father, Henry VIII, had, had, uh, had brought about with uh, his declaration of himself as the head of the church. She was putting Catholic priests to death and Catholic laity to death, including friends of of Shakespeare. So Shakespeare is living in a dictatorship. So of course he's not sympathetic to dictatorship. And what he's calling for here is a, is, is the, a restoration of order. And order has to be built upon morality. And morality has to be brought up, built upon Christian theology and philosophy. So it's the absence of those things. You know, in the dictator, Julius Caesar, in the Machiavellian Puritan, Cassius, in the manipulative rhetoric of Mark Antony, and again, in the idealism of Brutus, all of these things, if, if any of those things are divorced from objective morality, as understood by Catholic teaching, what we have is anarchy. What we have is tyranny and anarchy and tyranny together. So Shakespeare's living in those days. He's seeing it in practice with his friends being put to death by Queen Elizabeth. So, of course, Julius Caesar's reflection of his own day. And of course, the genius of Shakespeare, because these are timeless principles, it also holds up a mirror to our own day, to the politics of our own age, and lessons that we can learn about the situation in which we find ourselves. Boy, lessons we can learn. Uh, We should all be open to continuing that deepening of our appreciation and our exercise of virtue in those decisions. Yeah, I mean, now, certainly as much as in Shakespeare's time, you know, we see the anarchy that, that ensues when people decide to turn their back on conventional morality, that even the very fabric of society, such as the institution of, the, of marriage or the institution of the family, are up for grabs. We have uh, anarchy, which, which would, of course, precede tyranny, as it always does. So, you know, one, one thing we need to remember is that the, the one golden rule is there is no golden age. You know, and one of the great things about great literature is it teaches us the lessons of history so that we can apply those lessons to our own day. So Shakespeare's taken the lessons of history that he's learned from Plutarch about the lives of Julius Caesar and Mark Antony and the others uh, and uses that to hold up a mirror to his own time uh, and that at the same time holds up a mirror to our own time. And we can see how once politics divorces itself from morality and from Christendom, it leads inevitably towards tyranny, to to dictatorship, and to ultimately uh, the destruction of freedom. Mm. Well, Joseph, we've spoken uh, in previous episodes about sometimes the uh, love, I I hate to use the word hate, but love-hate relationship there is with 
the film adaptations of many of these great works. And probably Shakespeare is the one area where you probably have maybe an equal amount of hits and with misses. And in the film adaptations of Julius Caesar, for example, it's hard for me to think of Brutus and not think of James Mason or think of Mark Anthony with Marlon Brando portraying him in the uh, 1950s version of it. In that particular venue, it it's the film adaptations of Shakespeare plays can assist in us uh, the opportunity to be able to understand the dramas a little bit more fully. Yeah, I think the danger, and it's a danger that's certainly much more evident now than it would have been in the 1950s with the uh, the classic version of Julius Caesar to which you refer, which actually praised highly by James Bemis in his essay on uh, on, on Julius Caesar on film in, in the Ignatius Critical Edition. But uh, these days, uh, we're far more likely to see something which I call uh, Shakespeare abuse, mm-hmm. where basically the director and producer are doing horrible things, uh, giving uh, contemporary twists which actually invert or pervert Shakespeare's meaning. And so I find it very difficult actually these days to actually go to performance of Shakespeare's plays because I know I'm going to, I don't know, but I suspect that I'm going to, to leave um, much angrier uh, at the injustice that's been done to the Bard and his work uh, than is good for my own uh, peace of mind. So, But on saying that, I actually gave a talk uh, at DeSales University as part of their Shakespeare Festival. And after my talk on the, on the Catholic Shakespeare, I went to see a performance of Measure for Measure, which is actually extremely well done. I did, I did complain that the, the bawdy aspects of it had been accentuated to the detriment of the, of the moral dynamic, which is so often the case these, these days. But of course, mm-hmm. the, the, the bawdy aspects are an important part of Shakespeare. I'm not a Puritan. I don't believe they should be removed. I just think they should be seen in, in context and in perspective. And it's not just about getting laughs by, uh, by bawdy jokes. It's about following the plot and getting the deeper moral meaning. So uh, I agree with you that a play performed well and produced well and acted well can help us uh, to understand the plays. But um, unfortunately, of course, if we don't understand the plays, we're at the mercy of producers and directors that can actually distort our vision and not clarify it. Which brings us back around to the, the start of our conversation in that looking at this particular play, maybe most of historical plays that are set outside of maybe English history, can they be looked at as historically accurate or should we be looking at them as uh, dramatic presentations? Well, they're not meant as work of hist- works of history in the sense of being, we say, empirically verifiable in terms of the facts. And Shakespeare's mm-hmm. not, not endeavoring to do that. What Shakespeare's endeavoring to do is to present to us a dramatic portrayal of deep philosophical, theological, and moral truths. So he's really using whatever, uh, whatever, plot he, whatever plot he's following, whether it's a comedy or a history or a tragedy, he's really using whatever plot in, in order to actually dramatize truth, a political, a philosophical, or theological, or moral truth. So no, we, you, don't, you, don't read, you don't read Shakespeare for an objective understanding of what actually happened in history. If you want to be a historian, you need to look at other documents than the most then Shakespeare would might offer you sort of new angles upon the facts, but but you have to start with the facts, and Shakespeare is not concerned primarily with the facts. This is this is a work of morality, a work of philosophy, a work of theology, and of course a work of great beauty in a literary sense, a great work of art. It's not primarily a work of history, which I think is an interesting, uh, maybe a, a caveat or footnote 
to an overall discussion about how we read material out there now that's out in the world that is uses a historical backdrop and have we potentially become very lazy in our reception of that material and begin to process it as accurate historical understanding of past occurrences well th- th- this is a <laughs> this is a very very interesting discussion but one thing i would say is that um history is always subject to the philosophical and theological uh, uh, perceptions of the historian. So in other words, there's no such thing as a purely objective view of history. Someone can present facts, but even the facts that they present uh, are, are the product of those that they chose to present as opposed to those they chose to leave out. And there's always in the process of selection and the process of expression of ideas and facts of history, the historian always brings his own presuppositions in. So if he's a materialist or an atheist, he will downplay the importance of religion or spirituality or virtue, etc. So you know, the point is that history is subject, uh, as is literature, to the authority of the author. If the author of the, of the work of history is prejudiced in certain directions, that prejudice will be part of his understanding of history and part of the way he expresses it. So we do have to understand something about the historian as we have to understand something about the author of a work in order to understand where they're coming from and therefore, to get a, if you like, to get an angle on the angle that they're taking towards history. Fascinating. Sounds like a, a, quite a process of discernment or for the discerning reader. Absolutely, we... yeah. We, we, we need to be informed readers. We, we need to be wise readers. We need to, to know how to read. Because if we don't know how to read, then we won't actually understand what we're reading. In fact, on, on the contrary, we will be subject to to being manipulated by people who have agendas. So if we want if we want to avoid basically being manipulated and brainwashed, we have to be able to in, inform our reading, to be informed readers, to know how to read. And the, learning how to read, how to read a historical text or how to read a literary text is really the important starting point because if we don't get that right, we're going to get everything else wrong. Heaven forbid we should be manipulated by the Cassiuses of the world out there. I, Indeed, and so many people are. The mob, the mob is always being manipulated by cynics and, uh, and those that have the, the gift of words. Mm. Any final thoughts, Joseph? Well, only that it's been a joy as ever to these great works of literature of the Ignatius Critical Editions series with you. I, I, I thank you for the idea of doing this. It's a great joy for me uh, each week to be, uh, to be spending half an hour in your company talking about these great works. So uh, thankfully, we, we haven't quite come to the end of them yet, and we can, we've got a, another couple that we can do. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much, Joseph. Thanks, Chris. God bless you. You've been listening to Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. To hear and or to download this conversation along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will First, pray for our mission, and if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce.